Section 6 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 13 Helping Move to Coshocton County Transportation Driving the Stock The Mover's Room at the Tavern Homesick Horses A Long Ride Back Camp Meeting in the Rain Dismal Experience Another Camp Meeting One of the Mourners Desire for Conversion Unbelief In the spring of 1821, my Uncle Powell left Mingo Bottom to settle in Coshocton County on the Tuscarora River near White Eyes Plains, then a wild and only partially settled country. He was not able to buy land, but took a lease of a tract for seven years, the conditions of which were that he was to reduce the land to cultivation and have the produce for his compensation, the quantity of land that he should clear being a matter of his own choice. The occasion of their family's moving was an event for me, particularly as I was engaged to assist in driving their farm stock a part of the way and they had the use of our pony, Paddy, to help get their wagons, of which there were two, over the hills. The starting of this expedition was very elaborate, and as the distance to be traveled was about eighty miles, it took on the character of an overland journey to strange lands. Preparations were fully made for victualling the forces, and the commissary department was active for days beforehand. As they were going to a new country, they sold off nothing, but took all they could of household or farm utensils. Consequently, the transportation was heavy. They hired a wagon besides their own, and left much stuff for subsequent transportation. The loading up of the wagons occupied nearly the whole day of starting, and it was late in the afternoon when we mustered the cattle, sheep, and pigs in the rear of the wagons. In this service, besides my cousins and me, there were two boys who made it the occasion to visit the new settlement, and an additional volunteer force from the neighbors. To start off such a mixed drove of animals was no trifling affair, for though they would drive pretty well after getting used to the road and a day or two's experience, their obstinacy and contrariety at first was without parallel and a boy to each animal was little enough. First a pig would dart back and run like a deer till he was headed and turned, by which time the others would meet him and all have to be driven up, while in the meantime a cow or two would be sailing down a by-lane with elevated head and tail, and a breathless boy circling through a field or the woods to intercept her career, and then the sheep would start over a broken piece of fence, the last following the first and leaping higher over every obstacle till they were brought back to the road. We worked along till night when we put up about seven miles from the starting point. We stopped at a tavern, as was then the custom, only hiring the use of one room on the first floor, known as the mover's room, and the privilege of the fire to make tea or coffee or fry bacon. It was very much like camping out, and except that we were housed, was soldiers' quarters. 
This night two of the horses were taken with homesickness, and as they were not well secured, went back to the old place. The wagoner started after them at daylight, but it was noon before they were brought back, after which the line of march was taken up. This was Sunday, and though they were very strict about the Sabbath in that Presbyterian country, movers were tolerated in traveling on that day from an admitted necessity. With my uncle and his assistants there was no matter of conscience about it. All they asked was not to be fined. One of the wagons was disabled directly after we started by the breaking of the king bolt, for which a wooden pin was substituted till we could reach a blacksmith's shop three miles further on, and it was a question whether he would mend it. But he was found to be sufficiently utilitarian, or sinful, to light up his fire and weld the bolt, after which we moved up a long hill to our stopping place, fifteen miles on the way. The next day we got along pretty well, and reached Caddis in Harrison County about three o'clock, and here they concluded to let me return with Patty. I was then twenty-three miles from home, and it was a long ride on a lazy horse to make so late in the day. My uncle thought it best that I should go on and stay with them that night, but my aunt insisted that, though it would be a long, lonely ride for me, I would not suffer as much as she was sure my mother was suffering from anxiety, for I was more than a day beyond the time they expected me home. So I bade them good-bye and mounted Patty, with a rather heavy heart, for I hated being out in the night, and set off on a slow trot. I stopped once to feed him, but otherwise lost no time. It was a very dismal and pretty cold April 21st, and about midnight I reached home, to the great relief of my mother, who could in no way account for the delay in my return. My aunt was right in sending me back that night. In 1820, about the 1st of October, there was a camp meeting in the west part of Jefferson County, near a place called Springfield. On Sunday morning of this meeting, Father and I set out to attend it, walking the whole distance of twelve miles, which for a boy of my age was a pretty good walk, especially as we wanted to make it in time for morning preaching. I was very tired when I got there, and also pretty hungry. We had a lunch with us, but I was very bashful about eating before people, and still more so at a strange table. The brethren invited father to eat, including me, but I would declare I was not hungry, and went without, except as I could sneak a cake from my pocket, and thus stay my appetite. In the evening it came on to rain, and rained steadily till morning. The cloth tents afforded but poor shelter, and there were but very few wooden ones, or wood-covered huts, and at any rate I was too timid to go into any of them. Father was lost to me in the crowds of those who were singing and praying in the tents or at the altar, and I did not want to go into these crowds, as I should be beset by those who were pressing every uncomfortable-looking person to be prayed for, and I know I must have felt that, as to appearance, I came within that rule. I was wet, hungry, and tired, and did not know anybody. 
My resort was to stand under the platforms on which they had fires burning for lights until I got cold, and then go to one of the big log heap fires and warm and dry my clothes a little, though it took pretty steady roasting in this way to keep ahead of the rain. There were many other like untrained chaps who put in the night in this way, and we kept in a kind of gang of miserables who were company for each other. We could hear some fellow of a poetic turn occasionally allude to the rain in his prayer in a favorite formula, which was in this wise, While thou art watering the earth with refreshing showers, pour out showers to refresh our thirsty souls, etc., this for one who had a roof over his head would do, but we who stood outside utterly failed to appreciate the beauty of it. That night the preceding elder preached a pretty stirring sermon from the text, Say unto the righteous it shall go well with him, and unto the wicked it shall go ill with him, for he shall eat the fruit of his doings. I remember very distinctly that I followed him attentively, till the rain drove me from my seat, and I suppose the sermon was an effective one, for there was a lively time in spite of the rain. On the way home, Father asked me if I did not feel affected by it. I said, very truthfully, in view of my physical discomfort, that I felt badly. I was glad to say this, for I hoped it would close the conversation on that topic, but he stuck to it, and, as I think, very imprudently intimated to me that he should expect me to become religious if I remained in the family. The effect on me was not good, but it was short, as it would be with one so young. I cannot even now understand what effect he expected to produce on me. He must have been led away by his enthusiasm." I really did not feel indifferent to the importance of trying to live properly, but there was a kind of sanctity attached to all religious experience in my mind that overawed me and kept me away. It seemed as if some setting of me aside from the rest of mankind was to be passed through, and this deterred me when I might have been led in a common-sense way to be quite religious." But once at home from this camp meeting, I was not disturbed on the subject for some time, and relapsed into the ordinary routine of such life as the country afforded, of free and easy boys' pursuits in the woods or fields, sinless enough in themselves, but in father's view, worldly and wicked because not specially religious. I really was quite orderly, never swore, was not cruel or unkind, and never lied unless closely pressed, or tempted by the love of the marvelous. I suppose if I had chopped down a cherry tree, I should hardly have hurried to say I did it, unless the chopping of the tree was an achievement in the way of woodmanship. Things wore on in this way till the June of 1821, when I was a little over fourteen years old. Father then took me with him to another camp meeting, which was held about ten miles from Steubenville, near the line of the now so-called Panhandle Railway, and some six miles from where we lived. We started on foot on Saturday morning, with an arrangement ahead for our lodging when there. 
I do not remember a more delightful walk than we had that bright summer morning. Nature was in her loveliest attire. And the day so mild seemed heaven's own child, with earth and heaven reconciled. The song of one thrush by the side of the field is ringing in my ears yet. We reached the ground in good time in the morning, and were comfortably fixed for tent room, with several young men and women in the tent family, who made it pleasant for me, so much their junior as not to be considered a young man, before whom it was necessary to be dignified. And the mistress of the tent took me under her protection. It was a nice thing for me to sit in the tent or go about the ground at will, while father plunged into the depths of the meeting, and I escaped his importunities for a time. But through Sunday, two or three of the young women and one young man were converted. They soon beset me with their zealous exhortations, which, with the sphere that they established in the tent, so affected me that I yielded to their entreaties to be prayed for among the mourners. So I became a regular attendant at each prayer meeting for mourners, and spent the intervals moping about in a very doleful condition of mind till Monday night, when after a time the meeting in the ring broke up and all dispersed to the tents. In the tent where I was there were no special mourners, and they were singing some lively hymns, in which I joined with a good deal of spirit. Here a very happy sphere prevailed, and I seemed to be so involved in it that I sang most joyfully and felt very happy. This change of feeling, I supposed, was the so much talked of conversion, and accepted it as such. Believing that I had experienced a change of heart, and was thus in some way introduced into a new state of life, and by it lifted to a superior as well as safer condition as to my spiritual affairs, I felt a freedom from the sorrow and repentant mood I had been in, and was in an altogether ecstatic state. I had been taught to believe that my sins had been forgiven by the divine favor or grace, and that I was a new creature, born again and converted. I acted according to this instruction, and regarded myself as set apart or sanctified to a holy life, and with this I accepted a new responsibility and I earnestly set about the task of curbing my temper, avoiding bywords of a profane tendency, I never was in the habit of swearing, as I said, and carefully telling the truth. For many weeks it is wonderful how rigidly I lived, considering my youth and natural inclinations, adding to these suppressions of evil a great care to be serious, and not indulge in any play or light and trifling conversation. But this earnest living, or trying to live righteously, was not regarded as the evidence of my being religious. In common with others, I understood religion to mean a certain amount of enjoyment at meetings and at private devotions, which was known as an answer to prayer, after a certain amount of wrestling. In the first flush of my enthusiasm, I thought I experienced this two or three times, but as it was something that I misunderstood, and perhaps others misunderstood too, the enjoyments of religion soon failed me, and I began to think I was backsliding and 
falling away from grace. I labored hard in all the appointed ways to regain it. I assiduously attended all the meetings, prayed in secret many times a day, and procured the prayers of others. But that peculiar experience never returned to me. I kept along in the church as a regular attendant of all meetings, etc. As a youth, I was fond of company and naturally fond of fun and hilarity, and in time I managed to loosen the bands of restraint under which I first set out, and so share reasonably in the pleasures of life. But in the midst of it, I was haunted with the fear that I fell entirely short of living a Christian life, and my religious career of nearly seven years was marred with the weight of a sense of shortcomings and backslidings. In fact, I didn't enjoy religion at all. When I first set out, my confidence in the idea that I was born again and thence saved gave me a kind of self-righteous bigotry towards the unconverted herd of sinners. This did not last long, and I soon came to think that I was a frail mortal with the rest of them. All this time I received very little instruction in doctrinal matters, and my faith or belief was extremely vague, and when I did come to investigate it and analyze it, I very soon fell into unbelief, so that by the time I was twenty-one years old, I was really without a religious faith of any kind, doubting all revelation or even spiritual existence, and this in a religious family with daily prayers and constant church-going. But I became somewhat scrupulous about retaining a connection with the church when I could not yield it my credence, so I allowed myself to be expelled from the Methodist church for an offense, not now regarded as one, the non-attendance of class meetings after a membership of over seven years. Chapter 14. The Wills Creek Place Given Up, Unfitness of the Family for Farm Life, A New and Better Farm Bought on Mingo Bottom, Want of Schooling, A Night Grammar School, Grammar and Plowing, Making Sugar, The Scotch-Irish, A Scotch-Irish Neighbor, A Character, Psychological Experience. The foregoing experience was begun when we lived on the hill above Wills Creek. Near the end of the three years we lived there, Father gave up the hope of making the final payments on the land, and compromised with the former owner by surrendering the payments he had made as so much rent, and giving up his bargain. In that respect he lost nothing, though labor bestowed upon the place was a great loss, for it never yielded back anything beyond the cost of culture. After deciding to leave this place, it seemed that the idea of living in the country and trying to farm stuck by father with the tenacity of an affection for a good-for-nothing child. It never seemed to enter his head that having utterly failed to gain any advantage in the support of the family out of the farm, it would have been the sensible course to have gone into town where we should have had the social advantages as well as opportunities to make the labor of his boys available in assisting him in the general support of the family. Instead of this course, he looked about to find a small farm to rent 
near enough to town for him to be home at least two or three times a week, and for us to go to meeting in town every Sunday and occasionally oftener. After some search, he found a place of twenty-three acres of tillable land and log cabin, barn, etc., in a small way. It had some conveniences, as a good spring, a log spring house, timber privileges, a small number of sugar trees from which to make sugar and molasses. The soil was tolerably good, and it was a better place than the old one. I think he rented it all for forty dollars a year. The situation was also better, though less picturesque, and it was nearer to town, being three miles around the road, and about two by a near route up steep hills and across fields. It was straight up the hill from Mingo Bottom, and about a mile from the river, overlooking a very fine view of it, reaching several miles down the stream and across the hills into Virginia. Altogether, it was rather pleasant, and just enough better than the old one for farming, to waken in us a remote hope of success in that business, and settle the family in it, so that when we received a small legacy from my grandfather's estate, it was devoted to the purchase of a farm on which we worked out the problem of being farmers in entire failure. The great difficulty with the family was that we did not belong to the farming class. Our tastes and social ideas were all in another direction, and we were just near enough town to keep alive this feeling which stood in the way of success in the country. Mother's and father's standards of manners and tastes were above those of the people with whom we would have associated in the country, and the effect with the children was to foster in them a haughty notion of superiority to our neighbors, which they could not fail to observe and did not omit to despise, especially as we were far inferior to them in the business on which we depended. The consequence was we belonged to neither the country nor the town. We were of the one and in the other. In this state of things, I managed to be tolerably popular with the young people of the country from my naturally social turn. So far as the work was concerned, the boys learned to do it, and my mother and sister got to be handy in whatever there was to do, and worked hard without anything to make it pleasant for them beyond the mere comfort of the situation out of the crowded town. For my part, I had a great taste for rural life, because it was free, romantic, and poetic, and I liked the work that was to be done. But the quantity of the work to be done, and the constant devotion it required, made it slavish to me and irksome, in that it cut me off from the gratification of my taste for books and letters. The worst feature of our life was its waste of our time, and the loss of that kind of education we should have had. The family got comparatively no schooling, and had it not been for the home teaching and study, we must have grown up in the most deplorable manner. But father had good taste, with which he inspired us, and mother was fond of teaching us in such studies as she could, which, fortunately, were those afforded by the common schools of that time and locality. The younger children did go to school part of the time while we lived in the country, but I never did. 
After we moved to the place nearer town, I took some night lessons in writing and attended an evening school where grammar was the only study and in which I made good progress. I studied hard and followed it up after the lessons were through so that I acquired a pretty thorough understanding of the subject. But two things could not be well done at one time, and while I was learning grammar, I did not make the most of the time at work. I carried my book in my pocket and kept up my lessons by frequent reference to the text, often stopping the plow to see if I was right in my recollection of a point. This grammar class that I attended was managed on a plan then quite popular, and deservedly so, as it gave to young men, and even those advanced in life, an opportunity to learn such sciences as were not taught in the common schools, or such as they had not learned when young. The plan was to make up a class which was usually instructed by some traveling teacher, the members studying the lessons at leisure times, and reciting and practicing at a stated hour together, usually in the evening. At the time I speak of, I remember as members of the class men of fifty and boys of thirteen or fourteen. Perhaps the youngest of the class was Edwin Stanton, the well-known Secretary of War. The oldest was a Justice of the Peace and leading man in the town. It was otherwise made up of a young lawyer or two, an old shoemaker, a student of medicine, and sundry mechanics. The teacher was a hatter. At our new place, I set to work with new spirit and a good deal of enjoyment. The soil was so much better than the Wills Creek farm that we expected to raise good crops, in which we succeeded tolerably. But the great feature of this place was the sugar camp, which, though small, gave promise of some sugar making. We boys looked forward to the next spring for this novelty to us and it was with the greatest difficulty I could muster patience to get me through the winter. I built a hut for shelter and a furnace of stone in which to set the kettles for boiling the water, and then gathered wood for fuel and made ready as far as I could. But the winter hung on, till in January there came a fine spell of soft weather, which I supposed might last a week or two and as the sugar water would run as well then as any time, I got ready and tapped a part of the trees. I gathered a little water in the evening and looked forward to a fine run the next day, but that night there came a fall of snow that was half-leg deep. This checked up the business, for it soon froze up and all was solid winter. I boiled down my little supply of water and left it to go to the house with a good fire to keep it simmering, but it boiled dry and burned up clean. I had nothing left but to begin again when the winter broke, which was near the first of March, when I went at it in earnest and made some very good sugar, of which I was very proud. The quantity, however, did not exceed one hundred pounds. We made a small quantity each year while we stayed there, but it was rather unprofitable. At this place we had a neighbor by the name of James S., who was from the neighborhood of Belfast, Ireland, and was of Scotch descent, one of a race of people with which that part of the country was nearly all settled. Indeed, a very large extent of country in southwestern Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio 
covering the greater part of the upper end of the Ohio Valley, was first settled by the Scotch-Irish. They were of a stock of Scotchmen who, a few centuries back, settled in the north of Ireland, whence they emigrated to the United States, and chiefly this part. It seems as if a touch of the Irish soil makes a man easy as to the cares of the world, and takes from him all that character for providence that so marks the Scotchman under the term canny. And these Irish immigrants were thus affected. They were light-hearted and jolly, though more prudent and thrifty than the pure stock of Irish. They were of the Presbyterian faith and religion, very democratic in politics, and took kindly to whiskey, of which they made and drank large quantities, different individuals usually doing the making and drinking. Of this people was James S. To whiskey he bore the latter relation, and was usually under its influence when it was handy. He had been pretty well brought up in Ireland, being of a clergyman's family, I believe. He was intelligent and well-read, and besides, he was well-versed in the politics of Ireland of the period succeeding the Revolution of 1798, and their relation to English politics. He had taken part in the rebellion, perhaps from the innate tendency of Irishmen to rebellion at all times, for he hated the Papists most cordially. But he had escaped any consequences. He was poor because he had a large family and could not provide for them and drink the whiskey he wanted and save money. As we had to hire help in our farming, he frequently worked for us. At any rate, I was a good deal in contact with him, and we always talked when we were together on all manner of subjects, he a man of fifty and I a boy of fifteen. He would retell what he had read, and I would inquire and get from him his descriptions of Ireland and his details of experience or tradition. Or we would discuss some book we had read, or one that he had lent to me or borrowed from me. The books he read were largely theological, of the Presbyterian school, and were generally solid works. So our conversations were seldom useless, and to me they were often a source of a good deal of information. I think it is not saying too much to put to his credit a stock of information equal to many months of school training. Looking back now, it seems to have been a valuable association, though the contact of a boy with a drunken Irishman would not usually be so regarded. But his taste for whiskey was a physical weakness, from which he and his family were the sufferers. I never knew him to lead anyone to drink, and his family grew up to be steady and respectable. My plan of pumping Mr. S. and absorbing his information soon became a settled one with me, and I applied it to all my associates and made it the source of much valuable knowledge. It was a convenient way of coming at facts and history in a pretty well-digested and compact form, and was a great saving of time. About the time we moved to this place, I had a curious experience that I cannot well account for by the association of ideas. There is a little valley near Steubenville, to the southwest of the town, and in it I found a near cut from one place to the other, through which I could drive the cows, sheep, and pigs without going through the town, as we should otherwise have to have done, 
and thus shortened the distance and escaped the trouble of keeping them together in a strange place. Whenever I entered this valley, at either end of it, I was invariably affected by great dejection of spirits, which lasted until I passed out of it, and whether alone or in company this was always the case. The distance through it was a little less than two miles. There was nothing about this valley, of tradition or peculiarity of situation, that would call up associations, to me at least, of an unhappy kind, but to me it was always a place of melancholy shadows, and it was the only locality that ever so affected me. End of section 6